And in some cases, smugglers themselves would come to detention centers and say, hey, we're willing to pay a lump sum for a big group of migrants, basically taking advantage of the fact that these potential clients and customers have been consolidated into one place for them. Then the, the smuggler in turn takes these people to their own safe house or detention facility and warehouses these migrants until the migrants have money sent and then they're put on a boat to Europe. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today and I'm joined remotely by Tuesday Raitano, Peter Tinty, Nicole Sobecki, and FP's Ty McCormick. Tuesday is deputy director at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and a senior research advisor at the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria, where she leads five organized crime observatories in Africa. She is the co-author, along with Peter Tinti, our next guest, of the book Migrant, Refugee, Smuggler, Savior. Peter is an independent journalist focused on organized crime, security, and human rights. Nicole is an award-winning photographer and filmmaker based in Nairobi. And Time McCormick is FP's Africa editor, also based in Nairobi. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got episode ideas or comments, please email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. And if the idea isn't terrible, we will try and uh, get it on. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Okay, ER nerds, this is the first time I'm going to say that a podcast won't do this justice. I appreciate that everyone's listening, but you've got to go to the site and check out this new series that FP has launched today. We're really proud of it. It's an exceptional body of work and piece of reporting. And it's on a migration crisis that most people, maybe our readers do know, but most people don't know. Back in 2015, um, there was this migration crisis that, that made the front pages of newspapers around the world. This was when 1.3 million people applied for asylum in Europe. They came streaming in from Turkey, from Syria, from Iraq, from Afghanistan, and they overwhelmed the borders of Europe, from Greece, uh, in the Balkans, and st- streamed into Germany, overwhelming some of these societies and really instigating a political crisis. Um, and Europe, in some senses, solved this this crisis. There's been the rise of far-right parties and associated political tensions. Um, but the EU made a, a sort of devil's deal with Turkey for roughly 6.6 billion euros in order to stem this migration crisis. And it, it you know, for better or worse, has largely worked. And what FP's big investigation is on is a different refugee crisis. This is the refugee crisis going on in Africa where you've got millions of people, and I think the EU estimates one million migrants per year for the next four decades will enter Europe. And the, this is an, an African migration from sub-Sahara stoked by poverty, by uh, economic deprivation, by environmental change that is forcing an extraordinary amount of people up from sub-Saharan Africa towards the Mediterranean. And this is the this is the heart of of FP's investigation how Europe will grapple with this. And I'm so pleased to have three of the reporters uh, who participate in this series, uh, along with Tuesday, to to talk about the reporting, to lend some context, and to tell people about um, this uh, this problem that that too often sort of 
falls beneath the radar. So, Ty, um, you shepherded a lot of this project. You reported from Mali, Niger. Why don't you set a little bit of the context and tell us about the parts of that that you reported? Sure. So, I think maybe it bears mentioning that the idea for this series came out of this moment that you mentioned in 2015, when the refugee crisis really is at its peak, and and European governments are under tremendous pressure to at least to at least look like they're doing something to get it under control. And so as right-wing parties are gaining steam, European leaders held a series of meetings uh, with African leaders and a, and a summit in, in Malta and announced what was at least supposed to sound like a serious or even revolutionary response, a multi-billion emergency trust fund for Africa that was uh, designed to fight migration at its source. And, and it was billed as a kind of martial plan for the continent that was supposed to address the root causes of migration, which in the EU's telling basically boil down to poverty or joblessness and instability. And so in relatively short order, you had the EU rolling out um, a number of programs that were funded through this trust fund. And some of them were laudable, um, though I would argue uh, less revolutionary than maybe they were meant to appear. Um, Essentially traditional development programs designed to create jobs and deter migration But some of them were much more coercive, training and equipping uh, African militaries to crack down on migration, uh, funding detention facilities of the kind that Peter visited uh, in Libya, and which we'll talk about later. Um, But that's really where the idea for the series came in. I said, and Ben, you might remember this conversation we had about a year ago exactly. You know, we said, let's take a comprehensive look at this thing. Let's, Let's look holistically at Europe's response and ask not just what's working and what is it, but what does it mean for these policies to work? And and is there a risk that Europe gains control of its borders, uh, reduces migration to to a manageable level, but loses hold of its fundamental values? And and is there a risk that in staving off a far-right takeover of European politics, the continent descends into another kind of authoritarianism, uh, one uh, driven by, by the kinds of brutal policies that it's that it has embraced, caging migrants in, in squalid detentions, hunting them, you know, almost as if they were terrorists, uh, that, that I would argue are, and many would argue, are antithetical to the values uh, for which the continent stands. Um, so, so that was the background um, for, for the, the series. And I don't, I don't know if, if you want me to dive right into to the, the constituent parts or whether we should. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I, you know, listeners, in, in part two of this podcast and, and this series is, is uh, expansive enough that we feel like we need to double up on this. We're going to talk about the European political uh, conundrum uh, regarding migration, the money that they've spent, the, the moral crisis that they face. But I want to get into the reporting. So, Ty, the first place you went uh, – to sort of look at how this emergency trust fund was was working on the ground was Mali. Tell and, and Nicole, you were there too. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Sure. Um, you know, Mali is this really fascinatingly diverse place. It's bisected by the Sahel, which is this semi-arid band that stretches most of the way across the continent and forms a kind of barrier between the, I would say, lush tropical equatorial regions of Africa and and the Sahara Desert. And so Mali has kind of all of this within it. Um, it has, you know, lush regions, especially along the Niger River in the south, and it has this kind of endless moonscape of desert dunes in the north. Uh, and in many ways, the culture and the economy of the place mirrors these geographical differences. You have 
the hardened kind of desert people of the north who seem to be resisting the government at every turn. Uh, they're, they're rebelling constantly, thriving off of illicit trades. And then you have the settled people of the south who um, they used to make their living mainly from agriculture, uh, but who now for a variety of, of reasons are hugely, hugely dependent on remittances that are sent back from migrants abroad. And so Mali was one of the few places we could go to look at a range of EU responses. You know, those that were directed uh, at migrants themselves, um, trying to deter them from making the journey, and those that were directed at the smugglers, the Tuaregs uh, and the Tubus who'd been plying desert caravan routes for centuries and now, you know, are now the main um, smugglers carrying migrants north. So, um, you know, we were able to see the, the many sides of this trade um, and, and, and also, I think in many ways, Mali was this kind of toughest case scenario for Europe, right? Because uh, both for development, because it's so poor and because, uh, because it's so lawless for the efforts to crack down on smugglers. And I think what we found, it's fair to say, is that the, the EU's response is, is unlikely to work as intended. It's, it's development policies. Uh, may actually accelerate migration. And Wait, let me jump in. How's, how's that? How, how did these policies to promote jobs or to build jobs or to build industries there, how did they actually promote additional migration? Um, so I think, I mean, maybe this is a time for, for, for Tuesday to jump in. Sure. Uh, there's a fair amount of research on this. I can give you sort of the anecdotal stuff that we picked up that led us to believe that this was the case. Uh, maybe that's the way to start, and then Tuesday can jump in with some of the theory. But, you know, I interviewed dozens of young men, by definition, those who had not migrated. And they all told me that they hoped to go to Europe in the future, but that they simply didn't have enough money to make the trip. And migration is expensive. You need to pay a smuggler uh, or you need to pay a fixer to arrange a, a visa for you. Uh, and most of the young men in these extremely poor countries, Mali is among the poorest countries on earth, they can't afford it. And so uh, the paradox is that if you start raising the level of development, which for the record, I think is a good thing, a noble pursuit and something that the EU should be doing regardless of its impact on migration. But if you do it, you actually enable more and more people to migrate. So Europe's solution to the migration crisis in some ways could make it worse. And that's what we found in, in part one of the series when we follow this young man who uh, was employed at a cashew processing plant that was funded uh, by the Spanish Development Agency, who told me essentially that he was uh, using the job to save money to migrate to Europe. Um, now, that's not what ended up happening because the plant shut down essentially because it was mismanaged by the Spanish Development Agency, which raises a whole other set of issues that uh, we, can, we can talk about later about development aid. But uh, he ended up moving to the capital to go to law school. Um, but even even that route is is essentially a dead end road in Mali. Um, and he said that given the opportunity or the resources, uh, he would he would migrate to Europe. To say, tell us a little bit about the efficacy of this European aid that is going into places like Mali. Are are these projects working? Uh, uh, I mean, I I think that there, as Ty said, it, there strikes me that there is. Uh, certainly value and moral value in them. Um, but are they having the intended effect? They certainly aren't having the intended effect in any short period of time. So there's no visible change. And the trust fund money has been deployed in addition to the money that the European Union was already spending through its European development funds, which run to the hundreds of millions of euros a year. Um, but as Ty pointed out, 
first of all, development isn't easy to achieve, actually seeing a real improvement in people's quality of life and reducing inequality and providing access and advantage out of education is a long-term structural issue. So, I mean, many of these goals of achieving development are decades away anyway. Second of all, as Ty pointed out, it is absolutely and conclusively proven that as development in- improves, migration increases. So certainly from the lower income to middle income countries, you'll see higher levels of both regular and irregular migration all the way up until the point where a country is firmly in the middle income status. So certainly as an investment in terms of the goal to reduce irregular migration, it isn't going to do what the EU hopes it might. So so what what are the migratory pressures like? What does Mali, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, Nicole, what does Mali look like on the ground? Is it a place that's devoid of young men? Is it uh, a place where people sit around hoping to raise enough money to try and make the journey? Yeah, in Mali, I mean, one of the places that we focused on in our reporting was this um, cashew processing plant that had been built as part of EU's policy to boost development in Mali. And it's a kind of striking example of how something that works conceptually plays out very differently on the ground. Um, so this is not just any development project. It's one of their flagship projects. Um, I visited the plant in June, and it's these big, beautiful, well-constructed buildings um, that are sitting completely empty. And the security guard from the cashew plant, which who was the only person there when I arrived, took us on a tour around the plant. And it's completely idle. This is something that Ty visited in February, um, and the production level had just dropped off at that point because there were no more raw materials to produce. And four months later, when I arrived, the situation really hadn't changed. It was in beautifully built structure that was producing very, very little for the community. Um, And I think that that, you know, the lack of sort of oversight, the lack of following up, um, it's it's kind of a symbol of how, you know, these plans can work on paper, but when you actually look at how they're impacting people's lives directly on the ground, it's a very, very different picture. So the reality then is that uh, that you know, Tuesday, you sort of set out the scope, bringing Mali to the level of a middle-income country is at least a generational challenge. Um, so the young men that, that we follow, some of that we follow in the story or the journey that we follow in the story, where do they go from Mali? Ty, do you want to sort of draw the, the geography of this story for our listeners? Sure. So, so they go a number of places. Um, and, and that's, in fact, part of the story is that where they go is changing uh, as a result of what the the European Union is doing, um, because essentially where where a roadblock is is put in place, uh, you just get a diversion and you get people moving in another direction. Uh, but essentially, the, the the majority of these migrants are coming from West Africa, places like Gambia, from Senegal, from Ivory Coast, places that are maybe growing uh, but are at a relatively low level of development and. Um, Mali is toward the beginning of this journey. Um, and so it, it's also a journey, I should point out, that's legal for the vast majority of it. So these people are just taking buses and matatus, or we would call them matatus in Kenya. I'm not sure what you would call them. Uh, Peter, maybe you can jump in and help me. You're more of a West Africa I'm assuming this is a, a pickup sure, truck. Buses, buses, yeah, sort of um, minivans and pickup trucks, exactly, and buses, yeah. 
they're essentially the, the West African version of public transit, if you had such a thing. They're privately owned. Um, but it's, it's very easy to do. You're not carrying papers. And most of this happens within what's called um, the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. And so as part of that, there's a freedom of, infer- of, of uh, movement treaty that allows these people to uh, move without visas in this whole region all, all the way until they reach uh, the Libyan or the Algerian frontier. So they'll move through Mali. And depending on uh, which way they're going, uh, oftentimes the old route, they would go from there into Niger and then on to Agadez, where Nikki and I uh, spent a lot of time getting to the bottom of what's happened with the smuggling trade. Uh, And then from there to Libya and then across the Mediterranean to Europe. Now, one of the things that's been interesting is as um, the European Union has tried to stop that migration route, Uh, or at least slow it down, Um, and we can get into this later, but by paying off essentially the Nigerian military to patrol the desert and stop uh, migrant convoys, uh, some of that trade, it seems, uh, has been diverted, uh, and more and more people are going uh, north from Bamako, the capital of Mali, to uh, Gao, another uh, sort of caravan city that's very similar to to Agadez in a lot of ways, and then going all the way north to the Algerian border. Uh, and then from there to a city called Taman Rasset. And then from there, the, the route kind of diverges again. And some of the people go to Libya and some of the people go uh, to the coast. Uh, and then a, a small percentage of people are making the trip from Algeria. But the vast majority of them are going um, from Libya, and they would have come through Agadez along their way. So you and Nicole were in Agadez, which which struck me from the reading of this series like a, a smuggler's den, uh, almost out of, uh, you know, an early Star Wars kind of place. Um, dry, dusty, barren, and, and, and its trade, it seems, is this migratory process, right? I mean, Agadez is this fascinating otherworldly place. It's it seems to have arisen almost organically out of the desert, this Byzantine warren of mud brick compounds and souks and mosques, all the color of the desert. Uh, and when, when Nicole and I were there, it was probably 110 degrees every day. And there was so much sand in the air that you would get home at the end of the day and just be scraping it out of your nostrils and your ears. Uh, but this remote desert trading post that dates back to the Middle Ages, it has this kind of remarkable dual identity, I would say. You know, on the one hand, it's, as you say, Ben, it's a smuggler's haven. It's situated at the gateway to the Sahara. There's drugs coming through there. There's guns. There's migrants being trafficked on their way to Libya. But on the other hand, it's this kind of vibrant cultural oasis, a place where music and and, and nightlife are embraced and where the strictures of Islam seem not quite to have taken hold. Uh, in a way, you know, maybe Peter can speak to this too, but it seems to share some of the spirit with other desert oases, places like Timbuktu and Gao, uh, which I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but these are places that uh, they seem similarly culturally defiant, if, if you will. Uh, you know, they're places where music festivals have, have thrived alongside separatist movements for decades. Uh, and of course, these cities in Mali are no longer like that, right? The jihadist takeover in 2012 changed everything. And when I was in Gao, um, you know, I was traveling in a six-ton armored Toyota Land Cruiser the whole time and moving between blast-proof compounds in a town completely devoid of tourists. But Agadez sort of still has this spirit. It's it's suffering a serious economic downturn uh, because of the crackdown on smuggling, but it's still a dynamic place, a place with concerts and nightclubs and 
In, in fact, the cultural, I would say, seems to blur into the criminal sometimes. You know, uh, when Nicole and I were there, we, we stayed out until about three or four in the morning one night uh, listening to live Agadez music uh, and tr trying to talk to smugglers who were out there drinking and enjoying the show. Um, but I don't want to overstate things. You know, Agadez is, is very much suffering as a result of this crackdown and, and basically everything has slowed down. And the nightlife and, and the, the migrant trade uh, is all at a much lower level than it was before. So, Nicole, um, and I will tell listeners again, you have to go and see Nicole's photographs of these uh, smugglers and drivers. They're just amazing. Um, how many people are coming through Ag Agadez in the course of, I don't know, say this year or per month? And, um, you know, Ty has talked about the the impending crackdown, and I'd love, love to get Tuesday and Peter in on this discussion to talk about the role of the army and the role of Europe here. But give give our listeners just a sense of how many people are, you know, how many trucks are rolling out of Agadez into the desert every night on their way to Libya and hopefully to Europe? Well, I think that's something that was really striking. I mean... I'll, I'll get to that point, but I think it's important to note that when we think about how smuggling migration impacts the economy of a place like Agadez, it's not just the smuggler or the coxers, the sort of connector between the smugglers and other relevant parties along the line of migration. Um, it's not these few people who are benefiting. It's really the entire community. It's everyone who supports that from the hotels to the markets. Um, Everyone in the city is in some way benefiting from the migration. And when it was at its peak in 2015, Agadez was thriving and booming. And by the time we got there this year, it had really slowed down. Um, and the people who are coming through were far fewer than they had been a year before. Um, and that's in part because it's become much, much more dangerous to make this journey and also much more expensive. Um, and I was there as a photographer, and one thing that I noticed having sort of looked at many, many photos of Agadez shot in previous years, is that it was much, much more open, whereas when we sat down and talked to people and photographed them, they were much more reticent and cautious. Uh, we visited a uh, ghetto, which is where migrants stay before they're able to actually make the journey into Libya. And it took us days to navigate access to visit these ghettos and meet people there. And when I photographed people connected to the trade, smugglers, coxers, migrants, there was a real um, caution, and it actually was reflected in the way that I took the series of portraits that you mentioned. Um, in the past, I've seen people in their environment loading people onto trucks. That wasn't something we were able to see. A lot of these portraits were made with a you know dark background, people covering their faces, and I think that speaks to the sort of growing sense of fear among people connected to this industry that they will be hunted down, that they will be imprisoned because of their role in migration. Tuesday, um, give us a little context into this crackdown on the smuggling trade in Niger or across the Sahel. What does it look like? Who is actually doing the cracking down and at whose behest? There's no doubt that the crackdown has been focused on the city of Agadez, the one that Nic Nicole and I have described very eloquently. It had been by far the major hub by which all migrants heading towards Libya from West Africa were heading. And it was under enormous pressure from the Europeans that Niger agreed to try and close that hub down. Niger has actually been a long-standing partner to the European Union. They've been very supportive in the European Union's efforts to counter-terrorism in the Sahel Sahara. There is a EU counter-terrorism mission based in Niger in its capital. There's also an American military base. 
So the country as a hub has always had sort of a very open, collaborative approach to the international community with the rationale that it returns back to them in development assistance. And so clearly here we heard in 2015 the Niger government saying that they would need around a a billion euros to address irregular migration to really have an impact. I mean, clearly there was a quid pro quo discussion that was going on between the Europeans and and the Nigerian government. Um, Closing Agadez down for them, I mean, I think it comes at an enormous cost, as the points were clearly made. The north is an unrestive area of the country. It does include tribes that have typically been restive, have have had repeated efforts at uh, insurgent movements and insurrections. So to damage them economically by closing down the Akadeh's hub definitely contributes to a greater instability in the country as a whole. So I can only imagine here that that kind of investment by the Niger government came with plenty of payback. Yeah, and if I can jump in there, uh, Ben, I I think one thing that Tuesday just alluded to, and I know Ty and Nicole's um, reporting mentions, is that um, there was was an anti-smuggling law passed in Niger uh, that hadn't existed before that was passed very much with the consultation and um, really pressure from the EU to get this law on the books. Uh, because before that, um, you know, people could move from Niger to Libya irregularly or pay smugglers, and it was more or less a decriminalized activity. Um, and it still is in many ways culturally, and it's a real adjustment for, I think, a lot of these communities in the north to have to live in a world where facilitating the movement of people and goods across the border um, in what we would call irregularly or illegally but I think locally is just perceived as the way business is done and how communities thrive and survive. That's going to be a real adjustment economically, but also politically and socially. Um, It is really, for lack of a better way to put it, an outside intervention. It's a policy intervention that is being encouraged by by Europe. Um, Niger, after all, is a transit country. It's not a major source country compared to some of the other countries in the region. And so... um, the way the EU has engaged Niger as a transit country is to ostensibly ask Niger to be an external border, uh, you know, a layer and a barrier in which migrants have to overcome in order to eventually get to Europe. Right. It's the speed bump along the route. Um, so how are they doing this cracking down? Is this border checks? Are they, um, you know, Ty, you said this is largely an open transit zone, Um, and I know your reporting talks about the role of the Nigerian military um, uh, and the, you know, dogged and determined efforts of people to to run around them. Um, Tell us us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, I I think it's important to add to what Peter said, that it's an outside intervention that's had uh, some pretty serious unintended consequences. Um, you know, when we were there, military patrols were hunting uh, these smugglers and migrants in the desert. They were raiding the get- ghettos. They were arresting everyone they could connected to the trade. Uh, the jail in Agadez, which uh, Nikki and I actually managed to get inside of, um, was filled with people connected to the migrant trade. Um, and and but the reality is is that the crackdown it hasn't stopped the migrant trade. It has just driven it farther underground. And what it's done is it's made it much, much more dangerous. Uh, the, the routes across the desert are now longer uh, and they steer clear of any settlements along the way. So places you would have 
before been able to fill uh, your water bucket, for instance. Uh, now you're not passing through there on, on the route. And so, you know, the, the, the risks that you break down, that you get lost, that you get hijacked by bandits, um, all of that is, is much higher. And this is a route, by the way, that I would add that may have been the most dangerous smuggling route on Earth before the crackdown. You know, we don't have any data on how many people die in the desert. We have some idea of how many people die crossing the Mediterranean, which is now in the tens of thousands since the beginning of this uh, sort of wave of migration. But we have no idea how many people are dying in the desert. Uh, we only have some idea because when a uh, patrol happens upon uh, the human remains, we, we know that someone got lost and died. Uh, and this is a thing that, you know, smugglers that we spoke to, that Nikki and I spoke to, they would tell us sort of a, an everyday occurrence for them, that they would um, pass by uh, the remains of, of their, essentially their colleagues uh, and their human cargo. Um, so so it's, it's an intervention that has, has resulted in, in tremendous additional risks for the, the most vulnerable people involved here. And these aren't all accidents, people getting lost in the desert or running out of water or fuel. Uh, your reporting also shows that uh, it's the Nigerian military that's actually firing on these convoys, which are smugglers, but also full of innocent people just trying to find a better life for themselves. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I should have added, Ben, that uh, you know those are only the, the sort of natural risks, if you will. Um, but but what we found uh, and what smugglers and migrants alike told us is that the crackdown has not been uh, one that is has, has been conducted within um, sort of the confines of what we would expect some a European intervention to look like. You know, these uh, there were multiple reports of uh, Nigerian military convoys opening fire on migrant vehicles that were refusing to stop. Uh, ostensibly aiming for tires, but hitting people as well. Um, and then in at least one case that we detail in, in the report, um, rapes that happened in the desert, uh, female migrants who had been captured by the military during rapes, both right there in the, in, in the desert, but on, at the hands of uniformed military personnel, uh, and then later on at the hands of the police uh, in the police station in Madama, which is uh, one of the last sort of checkpoints or civil, uh, settlements along the, along the frontier with Libya. So you're absolutely right, Ben. It's, 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 it's a dual set of risks now. Tusir, are the European governments that are funding this crackdown uh, and these increased controls aware of what is going on uh, with their money? And what sort of leverage do they have to, to, you know, to, change, uh, to change the dynamics on the ground? I think, again, unfortunately, these compromises between efficacy and human rights is a compromise that the EU has been making in the Sahel for a while. You know, many of the criticisms that we just heard about the way that the army behaves are also things that we heard about the Chadian peacekeeping forces that were working in the EU mission to counter terrorism, the French sponsored interventions and others. I mean, human rights is a pretty barren concept in a lot of these countries. And I think while the EU tries to emphasize and adhere to them through the re repeated training, realistically, that doesn't have a lot of impact. And that's something that they've learned to live with. 
Well, I want to move up this migratory route now to, to Libya and get Peter, you've been very patient, I want to get you uh, into this conversation because one of the things uh, that was so striking about about your reporting um, was the that A, despite these efforts to stop migration, they clearly haven't worked uh, in any systemic way. Uh, and B, um, you reported from inside inside some of these uh, detention centers in Libya where these people, after making this harrowing journey we've heard about from Mali, from West Africa, up through Niger and these deadly smuggling routes, have finally landed in Libya where their hope is to buy passage onto a boat to make the journey out into the Mediterranean, either to reach Lampedusa or nearby islands, or get apprehended by, uh, you know, the European float or NGO flotillas who will hopefully, um, you know, sh- ferry them on to some sort of safety and the opportunity to make an asylum claim. Um, but I'd love you to tell our listeners about your reporting in Libya because some of these detention centers uh, and and the conditions there were so atrocious, it's sort of beggar's belief. Sure. Well, as Ty and Nicole and Tuesday have mentioned, you know, we have this migratory route that sees people going through um, West Africa and kind of being funneled towards Libya um, and a similar route actually in East Africa as well. So Libya is really the the key point of departure from where migrants from sub-Saharan Africa, as well as other parts of the world. There are Bangladeshis, Syrians, uh, people from the Middle East flying into or traveling to Libya to then seek passage onto these these boats that can take them uh, towards towards Italy. And just uh, just quickly, why is Libya the, the hub? Sure. Well, Libya is the hub because there's no government at this point um, and because it's, it's, a, it's a political black hole. Um, and I think here is where maybe a bit of history might be in order. Uh, Libya had been a gateway to southern Europe via boats for, for migrants um, for, for the better part of two decades. Um, and, you know, there were departures from Libya even during the time of the Libya's strongman Muammar Gaddafi. Um, and when those boats started, re- when arrivals to Europe started reaching a level that caused some, some panic and consternation in, in Europe, um, basically, Italy cut a deal with Gaddafi that was basically in exchange for, for for funds. Um, you can be you can do the dirty work of making sure these boats don't leave from Libya's shores. Now, with the fall of uh, Gaddafi and the the subsequent kind of descent into civil war in Libya, there really has been um, no partner uh, with whom Europe can cut a deal. So Europe has been scrambling to find a way to prevent migrants from. Um, even getting on boats in the first place. Um, and in addition to development aid and a new Marshall Plan for Africa and um, setting up, working with transit countries along the way to prevent migrants from ever reaching Libya in the first place, um, in Libya, this has translated to a policy in which um, more or less Europe is, is, is trying to find that partner through um, the Libyan, the the government that's in Tripoli right now, that's backed by, that's recognized by the UN, the, the government of national accord, but doesn't actually control anything. Um, in fact, a more accurate description of who's in charge of parts along the coast and who's running these detention centers um, are really just militias. And uh, on paper, many of these militias are loyal to the GNA and are registered under the GNA and actually fall under the Ministry of Interior. But in practice, they don't really answer to anyone. And they are... The GNA um, is the Government of National Accord. Is that right? That's the Libya... Yes, that's sorry. the Tripoli-based UN-recognized 
government. Exactly. Whose whose actual authority doesn't really extend much beyond certain parts of, of the capital itself. Um, so we have this, or as you said, Peter, beyond yeah. beyond the parking lot of its headquarters, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, to get from the the place where I was staying to the GNA headquarters, uh, which was not a very large strip of Tripoli that I had to to go through, I still had to pass through checkpoints that were controlled by people who no one knew exactly who they were or um, where their loyalties uh, lie. Um, so, so within this context of having this kind of patchwork of militias operating along the coast where migrant boats are departing from, um, we have this system now where some of these militias were allowing smugglers to operate in their territory in exchange for money and kickbacks and protection. Um, other militias in turn decided that actually uh, the better business now, having seen that Europe is eager to to pour money into Libya in the name of stopping migration, um, thought, well, maybe actually the, the real growth industry is not in migrant smuggling, but it's actually in migrant detention or actually doing both, playing, being able to play both sides of the ledger. So what we've seen is this proliferation of detention centers all along the Libyan coast, um, some of which are nominally run by the government, some of which are kind of quasi run by the government, and others are just run by armed groups who've decided to open a detention center. Um, and the condition, uh, we during this reporting, we visited five separate detention centers uh, in Tripoli and another in the coastal city of Zawiya. Um, and I mean, it, the, the conditions in all of them were terrible. I, I don't even think detention center is really, that's a euphemism. Um, even jail would be probably a bridge too far in some cases. What we're talking about is cages. We're talking about uh, sub-Saharan African migrants being locked into cages, sometimes, you know, hundreds in a room that should be really only hold dozens um, in, uh, for some of them had been there for weeks. Some of them had been there for months and they're there indefinitely. So provisionally, these are people who've been apprehended along the smuggling route. They are held by uh, militias nominally working under the aegis of the of this shoddy government, right, that, that runs or controls portions of Libya. Um, and they're held there uh, with the presumption that they will then be sent back to the countries from which they originated. But in your reporting, you also say that you know while they're held in these prisons, they're actually trotted out to do basically slave day labor, construction jobs in the heat. Um, and they're treated like – I mean I'm not sure if they're criminals. They're treated like slaves. That's exactly right. I mean, some of these migrants told stories of having been in uh, either the detention center they were at the time I was interviewing them or having been in a previous center where they were um, sold by one by the people who operate one detention center to another detention center for a fee or they were loaned out um, or sold to um, businessmen who wanted them to carry out, you know, heavy kind of manual labor of moving debris or construction or cleaning um, and were never compensated and, of course, then taken right back to the jail. Um, in other cases, it's kind of a well-known, it's an understood rule that a migrant can more or less purchase their freedom. So if they can arrange to have money wired to a certain account, then they can be let loose uh, and, 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 and be let free. Um, and even in some cases, smugglers themselves would come to detention centers and say, hey, we're willing to pay like a lump sum for a big group of migrants. Um, basically taking advantage of the fact that these potential clients and customers have been consolidated into one place for them. 
And then so then the, the smuggler in turn takes these people to their own safe house or kind of detention facility and warehouses these migrants until the migrants have money sent and then they're put on a boat to Europe. Uh, so there's, um, you know, what, what I describe in, in my piece is a, a migrant detention industrial complex that, that's emerged. Um, and it's in part predicated on the idea that uh, migrants, a, a captured migrant is something that it, that from which income can be derived. People are being traded and sold and, and leveraged in a variety of, of ways. I mean, actually, not wanting to correct my friend Peter here, this is a longstanding practice of Libya. In actual fact, a lot of the laws around illegal immigration were put in place at the behest of the Italian government under the Gaddafi regime. So back in the 1990s, Libya enacted a very harsh national law, which makes it a requirement for migrants to pay for their freedom. So a lot of these kinds of practices where you know people are waiting for money in order to go on, that's actually Libyan law coming into play. Um, ironically, Libya for the longest time criminalized irregular migration, but didn't criminalize the smuggler. That's changed as of more recently, but it is definitely worth noting that a lot of these places, you know, while we're already looking at uh, European policy, a lot of the detention centers and the facilities being built were built with money that the Italians gave to the Libyan government under Gaddafi, that the laws were enacted with the support of the Europeans, that they've been continually upheld, actually, over the past two decades in an effort to prevent irregular migration through Libya. And I think that's also what was surprising to me about this reporting, uh, and pardon my ignorance here, was the extent to which the European governments and multilateral organizations uh, are know about these detention centers, have presumably, or so they say, uh, monitored them for uh, humane conditions um, and are participating in this um, in this sort of dual-sided trade. Yeah, this is very much one of the the disconnects that that the cognitive disconnect dissonance that you see when you go there. I mean, some so these detention centers, which are completely unaccountable and in which migrants are, you, you know, you're seeing migrants who uh, look like they're 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 half starving, are only receiving you know a few handfuls of macaroni and a packet of juice per day, and are only let out of their their cells for a few minutes per day have no recourse or, or and, and no ability to contact their embassies. Um, they, these very facilities have, you know, stickers. Uh, some of the, the cell doors I saw had stickers from the EU, UNHCR, IOM. Um, and the people running these centers pointed to those as evidence of kind of the part the burgeoning partnership with Europe that that this is part of the solution. And when you talk to people higher up um, within the Libyan government and, and who are running these facilities, uh, like people within the anti-immigration police and with the Libyan Coast Guard and Libyan Navy, um, they're willing in some ways to call a spade a spade. They, they, when you ask them about the human rights abuses, they seem at, at a certain point exasperated. They're, they're in many ways frustrated with uh, reporters asking them about the human rights abuses, uh, because they know that that the metric by which they're going to be judged and by which the, the viability of this partnership with Europe is going to be judged is actually the numbers of migrants who get on boats and are headed towards Italy. It's not really about ha what happens to them once in Libya. Now, now Europe has um, said, and, and European uh, officials have, have, have said that 
human rights training and respect for human rights is, is very much a part of, of their programming. But um, that hasn't really come the, the, the fruits of whatever human rights training is taking place and whatever limited oversight they claim uh, is, is just not borne out on the ground. Yeah, it seems like this is uh, it's certainly an ends justifies the means scenario. Tuesday, are, are the ends working? Is this are we seeing a curtailing of migration? I, I think this year, at least in the early part of this year, saw almost record numbers of people trying to attempt the Mediterranean crossing and concomitantly drownings at sea. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is it is working temporarily if you look at the numbers of the last two to three months. I mean, certainly departures from Libya have gone down dramatically. Um, the question is, is it working sustainably? And that's the answer there is almost certainly no. I mean, we are, and estimates have been made that there are some 400,000 migrants waiting in Libya for a chance to move onto their onward journey. That the smuggling networks, and our recent reporting have said that the smuggling networks, all of the groups, and it was mentioned earlier, are in one half positioning themselves vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, but they're also very afraid to be caught on the wrong side of the deal. I think individual smuggling groups are very afraid that they would get scapegoated for the whole trade and then found themselves brought up before the International Criminal Court or prosecuted. So there's a pause. I think there's a wait and see pause, but I would be I think it would be very wrong to say that we found a lasting solution to Europe's migration crisis with any of the things that have been done so far. Well, I think that's a perfectly depressing and sanguine note to end on. Um, I want to thank you Tuesday, Nicole, Peter, and Ty for this. Um, listeners, I encourage you again, go read the entire story. It's beautiful. Uh, it's powerfully reported and it's important. We will have another podcast on this where we talk about the European dimension, the moral quandary, the, the rise of the political right, and the, the choices that European leaders face uh, in trying to find a systemic resolution to what seems like it has none. Thanks very much. Talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. You can find FP's special investigation at europeslamsitsgates.foreignpolicy.com. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.